We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to Sideline Sanity. I'm Michelle Tafoya. We are sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There has never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Go to LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. We talk a lot on this show about energy, nuclear, fossil fuels, green energy. What's real and what's not? Where are we delusional on this push toward going green? We'll discuss it with Mark Mills after this. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. So let's hearken back to the campaign of 2020. Joe Biden was asked a number of times about fossil fuels, about climate change, etc. Let's roll in a little bit of what he said back then. Would there be any place for fossil fuels, including coal and fracking, in a Biden administration? No, we would we would work it out. We would make sure it's eliminated. No more drilling on federal lands. No more drilling, including offshore. No ability for the oil industry to continue to drill, period. I guarantee you, we're going to end fossil fuel. What about, say, stopping fracking and stopping yes. new pipeline infrastructure? Yes. New pipeline, and, and, exactly. And- no more, no new fracking. We are going to get rid of fossil fuels. I've argued against any more oil drilling or gas drilling on federal lands. No one's going to build a coal-fired plant again, and we're going to get rid of the ones we have now. Have a transition from the oil industry, yes. Would you be willing to sacrifice some of that growth, even knowing potentially that it could displace thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of blue-collar workers in the interest of transitioning to that greener economy? The answer is yes. Well, there we go. And chuckling alongside with me is Mr. Mark Mills. He is a Manhattan Institute senior fellow, faculty fellow at Northwestern University's engineering school, and a partner in Montrose Lane, an energy tech venture fund. His bio goes on and on. He's written the book, The Cloud Revolution, How Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom and a Roaring 2020s. And that came out in 2021. So uh, we're right here in the what we were hoping would be the roaring 2020s, Mr. Mills. Uh, Mark, it, it, it seems to me the moment Biden stepped into office and canceled the Keystone Pipeline, the tone was set. Yeah. This administration was serious about yeah. it, it wasn't just a little here or a little. There. It, it, it was serious about and and this has put us in a really rough spot. Here we are. You and I are talking in early September 2022. Where are we that we could have avoided being? Well, <laughs> that's, 
that's a, <clears throat> that's what you call a leading question. Yeah. Uh, as they say, you know, the United States is still in decent shape. Let's just be clear about America, where the United States is right now. So this administration is trying to deliver on its promises in the clips you paid. Uh, there was, you know, you know, that old line that uh, Obama used, President Obama, that elections have consequences. Mm-hmm. So this election uh, has a consequence. This administration was clear. It's not a secret. Wants to eliminate the ability for America to produce and use hydrocarbons, fossil fuels, oil, gas and coal. <clears throat> so they have, they've been totally honest about it and they're trying very hard and they might yet succeed um, to know where, where what this would do to America. We just have to look at Europe, which has been trying to do the same thing for a longer time than we have uh, and has succeeded in reducing its use of hydrocarbons somewhat. So here's Europe today after two decades and pretty close to two trillion dollars of spending to try to quote, transition away from hydrocarbons. And Europe still gets 70% of all of its energy from oil, gas, and coal today. <clears throat> and uh, a lot of that, as everybody has discovered uh, by reading the news, comes from Russia. So not only did they um, shut down domestic coal production, domestic natural gas and oil production, but they bought what they needed increasingly from Russia. This is what's led to the problem we have around the world and Europe and in America, which is the spike in energy prices was already starting before the invasion of Ukraine by Russia. We were already north of $100 a barrel in February of this year. Uh, it went up a little more because the invasion went down a little more. It's a, but we're in the $100 range now instead of the $50 range. So we doubled global oil prices because of the energy policies of Europe, which America is now following. And we've doubled or tripled domestic natural gas prices, also because of the so-called energy transition policies in Europe. And in Europe, uh, natural gas prices and electric prices have gone up about a thousand percent because of those policies now. It's astonishing to me that it's okay to buy the stuff from Russia, <laughs> but it's not okay to use the stuff right under our feet here. Like, I, I'm, I'm curious to know why we need or anyone needs yeah. to depend on Russia at all when we are such an energy rich country. Is this virtue signaling? Is this that let's move the cups and they won't be able to follow, you know, along and we'll still get the oil, but we're not getting it from our own drilling. We're getting it from Russia. What I don't understand this logic. Well, I I could be a cynic uh, and say that it's it's deliberate logic in the sense if it comes from somewhere else, you don't notice. And maybe Mm -hmm. you can hope you can ban it when it comes from somewhere, somewhere else, which is what Europe's trying to do. You know, the U.S., Biden uh, issued a sanction on buying Russian oil. We don't buy much Russian oil here. So to your moving the cups around in that you know shell game that um, yeah. magicians play. So here's here's how crazy it is. And this is where America is going to follow Europe. In Europe right now, the world has sanctioned the purchase of Russian oil. You know, you don't buy it. So what's happening? Well, the Chinese and the Indians, India and China are buying Russian oil at a discount because it's sanctioned. So they just ignore the sanctions. And then they turn around and refine that oil and sell it back to Europe as diesel fuel at the (laughs) non-sanctioned price. In fact, this this is how crazy it is. Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia doubled its purchases of Russian oil. Saudi Arabia, right? It's not like they don't have any oil. And why, why would they do that? Why would Saudi Arabia, while Biden was visiting them, double their purchases of Russian oil? Well, because you can buy it at a discount 
resell their own oil at high market prices and you get, get the spread. What a deal. I mean, some finance wizard noticed this in the halls of Riyadh and it's probably got a big bonus because of it. But, but the oil is still being sold. Putin has more money flowing to him now than before the invasion in terms of energy revenues. His war chest, literal war chest, is being increased because of these feckless bans, which are yeah. not working. Uh, America could do exactly the same thing. In fact, California is doing exactly that, by the way. California is the biggest importer of Saudi Arabian oil, which they can sell to California at a premium, having bought discounted Russian oil. It's crazy. But that's how the markets work in this, this virtue signaling universe. That, that's nuts. And it is virtue signaling. In other words, we're going to go green. We'll let Russia do all the dirty work and we'll buy it. But that's OK. You know, and we'll siphon it through India or China. This is nuts. I don't know how people are standing by and watching this and saying this is OK. I mean, this is crazy world to me. Well, I, I hope I'm not over exaggerating it, but that, but that's that's insane to me. And meanwhile, aren't we looking in Europe at a winter of discontent, at a winter where keeping your house warm is going to be incredibly expensive? Well, it already is expensive. The price of electricity has as I said earlier, it's gone up a thousand percent on the what's called the spot market. And it'll go up. The average bills have gone up two to five fold, 200 percent to 500 percent. People in uh, Germany are uh, buying wood and coal, the stockpile for wood and coal fired home heating stoves. In Poland, they're lining up for days to buy coal to heat their homes, knowing what's coming this winter. The uh, uh, the consequences of this are to, to accelerate what was already underway in Europe, which is what's being called energy poverty. The single biggest bill for lower income families is now their energy bill, bigger than all their other bills combined. This winter is going to be extremely uh, sad and unfortunate on the path that we're on. We can't, you know, America is already shipping record amounts of liquefied natural gas to Europe, but we can only ship so much because you can't build the ports and the ships overnight. Right. Europe can't build the additional income terminals to receive it overnight, although Germany's trying, by the way. So what's Germany doing in the face of all this? Well, they're going to delay shutting down some nukes. Finally, they are they are burning more coal now than they have in a, probably a decade. Certainly an incredible, incredible increase in coal consumption, coal consumption uh, because of these uh, really misguided. Uh, and frankly, and I use the title of my paper with caution, but deliberately, it's a delusional policy to think that you can rapidly eliminate the use of oil, gas, and coal and just you know build windmills and solar arrays and batteries. In fact, if I, wanna, if I can add to the insanity that, you, that you're properly expressing shock at, yeah. so here's California banning internal combustion engines, and uh, no one is really asking the question in the public space. Researchers know this. Where do the materials come from to manufacture the batteries? Well... It turns out the, the refined copper, the refined lithium, the refined cobalt, the refined manganese, the, the whole suite of minerals you need to build batteries. China has a market dominance in producing those energy minerals that is double the market dominance that OPEC has in oil. So in other words, <laughs> our dependence on China, if we go through with the whole, you know, electronic vehicle revolution and buying more right. batteries, the dependence on China is going to skyrocket. Yeah, of course. It can't, it can't, you can't help it to be anything else but that for a very simple reason. 
if you said, oh, well, I, and this, by the way, the, this, the, uh, the Orwellian named Inflation Reduction Act, which is basically yeah. the Green New Deal with a new name, it does say, and we'll, we'll give them credit for this, that you only get the uh, electric vehicle credit if the minerals are sourced, at least the majority of them are sourced in America, which means, by the way, this is the one green shoot in this, there will be no credits unless they rewrite the law because you can't source them in America because we don't have the refineries and we don't have the mines. So let me be a cynic again. What Congress will do, <laughs> maybe even this, maybe even a Republican Congress, because they don't have a great track record on this either. They'll just, uh, you know, uh, jigger the language a little bit in the act so that you can rebrand Chinese chemicals somehow as American sourced by running them through a third party. And then you yeah. can get the credits. That's, I think, to be a cynic, that's what will happen. But if you really held the credits a standard that you have to source the minerals in America, we don't produce them here. We, we ran those businesses out of here over the last two to two or three decades because they're big chemical industries. And EPA doesn't like big chemical industries. They run them, they run them out of the country. They're in China. They're in Indonesia. They're in, they're in all sorts of Asian countries. They're in South America. That's where they are. And we're exporting... We're exporting jobs, we're exporting money, we're exporting pollution, and we're exporting carbon dioxide emissions because all of those chemical refineries consume energy to do the refining. And here's a, you know, the last sort of the nail in the, the coffin of insanity. Two-thirds of the electricity in China, which most people should now know, is produced by burning coal. So doing all this work in China <laughs> increases the coal consumption of the world. This is lunacy. I mean, it absolutely is lunacy. And as you describe it, a delusion to be able to think or to think that we're going to we're going to just switch. We're just going to shut everything down and switch to green energy when people don't even think deeper than yay batteries, yay windmills. Yay, that sounds so good and it looks so pure and clean, but they don't dig to that second level. We're talking with Mark Mills from the Manhattan Institute. Uh, just recently released this report, which I've been sort of tweeting sections of it out, hoping to get the attention of anyone. It's called The Energy Transition Delusion, A Reality Reset. What people in government are telling you about what we're able to do isn't really true, folks. I know. It's shocking. I I know. The government would spin the truth? Yes. Yes, they would. Uh, more with Mark right after this. Well, you continue to feel the effects of inflation everywhere you turn, the gas pump, the grocery store, anything that you're purchasing, energy, it's all expensive. Inflation is at a 40-year high. And, you know, you've got short-term options and long-term options. Let me suggest a long-term play, and that is precious metals, gold and silver. And the only company I trust for gold and silver is Legacy Precious Metals. You can find them at LegacyPMInvestments.com. Remember 2008? Those who invested in gold saw huge gains and others, they lost their retirements. Gold is a hedge against inflation. It protects against this weakening dollar we're experiencing. So if you want to make the long play, the long-term play, gold and silver, that's your answer. And the only company I trust, Legacy Precious Metals. Give them a call today. Here's the number, 866-528-1903. And you can speak to an IRA expert. Again, it's 866-528-1903. Or you can download their free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. 
We're back with Mark Mills talking energy. I'm confounded by this lack of curiosity or commitment to nuclear power, nuclear energy. It seems to me that even some diehard environmentalists have said, this is the cleanest energy we can produce. And it's safer than people realize. Of course, we have a couple of really bad past experiences. Uh, we've had some bad past experiences with a lot of things, but we improve on those. Why won't the United States invest more, or am I just not seeing it and it's happening behind the scenes? Well, there is some there is some increased attention to nuclear energy in uh, the Department of Energy, and they are playing lip service to it. But if you looked at it in terms of the ratio of the amount of money being thrown at wind, solar, and batteries, it's in the noise. It's just a trivial amount of money. But you know, I don't mean to call million, tens of millions of dollars trivial, but against hundreds of billions thrown at wind, solar, and batteries, tens of millions in the nuclear domains are just not going to cut it to really to make a difference. So your instincts are exactly correct. There is nothing in the physics of energy, nothing that comes close to the profound improvements you get in terms of our environmental footprint compared to nuclear energy, nuclear fission. Uh, give it some context. Going the wind solar battery route roughly increases the amount of materials we need to produce a unit of energy, to drive a mile, to heat up home for an hour, to heat a ton of silicon to make semiconductors. So if you go the wind solar battery route, you increase the amount of minerals you have to mine, never mind where they come from, just wherever, by a yeah. thousand percent per unit of energy delivered. Thousand okay. percent more stuff dug out of the earth. Okay, so we got to dig out a thousand more percent more rocks, resources, yep. more stuff to go the same one mile that we could go on a fossil fuel. Exactly. And then if you go the other route, if you say, why don't we go nuclear? You actually decrease your material footprint by about a thousand percent because nuclear energy is so dense, so high performance that instead of increasing our footprint on the planet, having to dig up more stuff, expand on more land, we could decrease it by going nuclear. And, and your point is exactly right. I mean, obviously there's two things going on with respect to nuclear energy. Well, maybe three, right? There's the fear factor, uh, the, op the opposition that the environmental movement is still mostly hard over opposed to. And of course, there's the money factor that the first generation of nuclear power plants, which are fine and, should, and could and should run nearly a century, are not the ideal design. But like you said, nothing is ideal and gets and always gets better. But it's certainly very safe, certainly safe enough. And your point about the fear over an accident and given the... the uh, the three accidents that have occurred in history, which is Three Mile Island, of course, in 79, the Chernobyl accident in 84, and then Fukushima in 2000, right. I think it was 18. Did I get, mm -hmm. was, okay, I think it was 18. I apologize. I think you're right. But I think you're right. When you think about this, I, I happen to be at, not to date myself, as a young young man, I was at the accident at Three Mile Island for the week of the accident. Here, here's an industrial accident that cost billions of dollars that did not harm a single worker or a member of the public. S same with Fukushima. The only people that were harmed were people in the evacuation that wasn't needed. Chernobyl, on the other hand, which is a, a crazy design without a, what's called a containment building, a, a design of reactor no one in the world would build or has built other than the Soviets back in the day, did kill workers. Did, it did cause real, real harm. But no one builds those kind of reactors other than the Soviets. They don't build them anymore either. 
So the, the mythology that this is a uniquely dangerous form of energy is just that, reinforced, of course, by decades of, you know, Hollywood doing movies about giant ants and giant <laughs> cockroaches and giant spiders. There was even one in the 50s about a giant woman, which, of course, is a <laughs> teenager I kind of liked. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but the silliness of radiation being uniquely scary, I understand it. People are afraid because it's invisible and yeah. all that. But it's yeah. a profoundly safe form of energy, profoundly better. And yeah, I, I think I do think what's happening now will cause a resurgence. Certainly is in Europe and a rethink. And but it'll take time. You can't you can't design, build and uh, install new nuclear power plants in, in a few days. It'll take a decade or so to really make a difference. In the meantime, we're going to burn a lot more gas, oil and coal. That's, that's what's going to happen. Well, it's amazing to me to that that whole rate, um, equation you just set out that nuclear would reduce the carbon footprint by a thousand percent, whereas the 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 windmills, batteries, and I know I didn't say it in the same order that you did. <laughs> it's such a good. What's the? What are the three letters again in order? Solar wind batteries, if you like. SWB. SWB. Solar wind batteries <laughs> would increase. Yeah the carbon footprint yeah. by a thousand. I don't know how this is getting by the, the, the very passionate voices of these environmentalists. How do they not see this? Is, yeah. is, is this just as you, you use the term virtue signal yeah. and it's an important term because what it suggests is look at how good we are, but it's not really good. It's and, and, and they're pulling the wool over the voters eyes. Well, let me be clear first to, to, to calibrate it clearly. Thousand percent increase is the quantity of rocks you have to dig up to produce unit of energy. So when you build a gas turbine, you have to get steel and aluminum and minerals to build the turbine. And then when you build a wind turbine, you have to get steel and minerals to build the wind turbine and plastic. So that, that part of it goes up a thousand percent. The carbon emissions also are real because to dig up all that material, to your point, you're using big mining machine that burns yeah. nuclear fuel. So the, is this virtue signal? Yeah, yes. And what's going on now is a slow realization that all the digging up of stuff to make the electric car, let's say, emits carbon dioxide somewhere. It's one planet, after all. We're told it's one planet. Well, it is one planet. And carbon dioxide doesn't care where it's emitted. It's not a pollutant in the sense of a normal sense. It's a largely a harmless gas in the, in the biological sense. It's the food of plants. I mean, to state the obvious, as everybody learned in their they should have learned in their elementary school biology class, plants eat carbon dioxide. That's what they grow with. That's what. Right. So if you have a greenhouse, you increase the carbon dioxide level in a greenhouse in order for the plants to grow faster. But so, but carbon dioxide is also a quote greenhouse gas. It increases the temperature of the atmosphere. That's what, it, that's why we're having this big climate debate. But here's, mm -hmm. here's the crazy thing. Volkswagen and Volvo, uh, which are, well, I'll just say they're being, they're chasing the, you know, the, the, the EV chimera, like everybody else, they want to sell lots of EVs like Elon Musk. Everybody has Elon Musk envy in the car world. I get it because he utterly dominates the market. But they yeah. both published a study at their website, a very good study, looking at what I just described, which is the carbon footprint that's created to fabricate the electric car and its battery. And then they published a, a, in that study how long it takes for you to drive that car before you emit less carbon dioxide than if you just stayed in your gasoline powered car. 
The answer is about 60,000 miles for the Volkswagen study. So for the first 60,000 miles, you're driving your EV in California or in Wisconsin or in New York or Florida. You actually have led to more CO2 emissions to the planet than the person you're making fun of still driving a gasoline-powered car. And does it eventually reduce carbon dioxide emissions? Yeah, of course it does, but not by nearly as much as you thought. And certainly not zero emissions, which is this whole myth, which is just simply flatly not true. Yeah, and, and we've had so many politicians say we've got to get to zero emissions. I don't know how you can possibly say that it, it, or, or, or have that as a goal when everything you've just detailed suggests it's next to impossible. If you want to say in the United States of America, we're going to do this, okay, what about the rest of the world? And as you said, it's, it's one planet. It's one atmosphere. We're all going to experience whatever the rest of the world is doing. Oh, well, we have to lead in America. So we're going to lead in America, but at the same time, we're going to use, you know, the stuff that's created everywhere else outside of America, whether it's through a third party or whatever, but we're going to be the ones looking good doing it. And in the meantime, becoming dependent on other countries. Well, it, it scares me. It is. Well, actually, it is scary. So I, you know, I, I I do work hard in my writing to stay uh, not cynical, but just to lay out the facts of what's going on. So the facts of the materials use, the carbon emissions, where they're really happening, are just facts. And it's not my facts. I get these these data from the International Energy Agency, the progenitor of the energy transition, and from the World Bank, from the International Monetary Fund, from the U.S. Geological Survey, from the Finnish Geological Survey. These are all data that anybody can find using the magic Dr. Google and just ask the question, you know, <laughs> how much material does it take to make a car, an electric battery? And where does it come from and who refines it? The, the data are all in the public space. What's going on is we have this... Uh, well, you said almost impossible to get to zero emissions. I, I'll, I'll go out on a limb that's not a very long limb. It's not almost impossible. It's impossible. It's not going to happen in the foreseeable future. And by foreseeable, I mean not the politically foreseeable future, which is two years, <laughs> or the business planning cycle, which is 10 years. It's not going to happen in the, uh, the scientifically foreseeable future because we can't replace hydrocarbons and we can't do it because it, we, are, we, are, we don't have the, the technology and the physics to do it. You can reduce it, and we've been reducing it. I mean, America uses the world. Let's just do the world. The world uses as a share of all, its, of, all of the energy today, two percentage points less dependent on hydrocarbons today than 20 years ago. Two percentage points. So 86% of all energy came from hydrocarbons 20 years ago, 84% now. Two percentage points cost $5 trillion to get there. So what we've done is we've made energy more expensive, less reliable, and not made a really big difference in how much the world needs to use hydrocarbons. We've made the world poorer because of it. Because oh. if you think about the obvious, if I have to heat, heat a house to drive a car, it's the same hour of driving, the same hour of heat. But if it costs me more, that's the opposite of productivity. That's wealth destroying yeah. This is, oh. this, is a, this is a very serious bad path we're on. This is a very serious bad path we're on. I'm just repeating what you just <laughs> said because it's and, – and anyone can read the report. I, I guess I would ask you, and this is, you know, once in a while people will say, okay, so what then is the answer? So I would, I would pass that mm -hmm. question on to you. It, it, our, first of all, I think expectations need to 
be measured up to reality. Right. And, and, and I don't know that you're ever going to get all of these dreamy eyed people who see this utopia to understand what's reality and what's delusional. I, I just, I don't, I don't know. They're going to just call you names or something. They're, they're not going to look at rational arguments. Be the first times. <laughs> yeah. Right. I, I know. Uh, I know. So, so what are the realistic steps? Nuclear, obviously, yeah. I think is, is a big one and is so important and it needs more attention. I hope it's getting that. I hope that, that we're, we're growing that. What else? Well, the question you ask is the right question and people don't like the answer um, because the answer in one word is patience. So if, if the, the answer, we have to define the question. The question is implicitly, what's the answer to reducing or eliminating the use of hydrocarbons? What's the answer to that? Since that's the stated goal. And the answer is energy forms and sources, machines that produce and use energy that are profoundly different than what exists today. Because what exists today can't do the job. It's not, this is not a political statement. It's not a, an aspiration or a climate statement. The machines that exist today cannot eliminate the use of hydrocarbons. By that, I mean the solar wind battery machines, hydrogen, you know, fuel cells, all the things everybody talks about. They can't, they won't. But that doesn't mean there is nothing ever. First, you know, as a, you know, I, I was trained in physics. I worked for a while as a scientist. I, I'm the first to say, you can never say there's not going to be new physics. We'll discover some phenomenologies. You can't say as an innovator, and I used to invent things and have patents. I still have the patents, but I used to, used to <laughs> do things that resulted in patents. People will innovate, find new solutions. That will happen. But it won't happen at the velocity that politicians and these uh, pundits want. So that's why I said it requires patience. There will be uh, a change in the structure of the world's energy systems. There will be new technologies. That's why new books about the cloud revolution is fundamentally a book, an optimistic look. That's why the subtitles are roaring 2020s, which we'll get, we'll get the roar eventually. But it's, it's a roadmap of what's possible, not just in energy, how we produce it, but more importantly, how we use energy, you know, robotics and automation. Uh, productions of, of, of therapeutics and vaccines. These are all energy consuming businesses, which will change too. It, all of it's extraordinarily uh, promising for a far wealthier, healthier future. But it's a huge mistake to try to accelerate something that can't be accelerated. So the so-called transition, if there, if there is one and there will be one, one day will be far, far slower than politicians like. So for squandering money, trying to make something happen fast, you can't. We're squandering money to make something happen faster when you can't. I think that is so important. And a lot of this, a lot of this is taxpayers, <laughs> everyone listening, your dollars being squandered to try to make something happen faster than it can. There's revolution and there's evolution. So when, when Ford, you know, built the first car, that was revolutionary. Yep. Now we've, we're evolving the car. That's evolutionary. Yep. And that's what has to happen. And it cannot happen uh, with the speed that Greta Thunberg and and, and many of the other environmentalists <laughs> or, would like. Or even this administration, uh, for that matter. Or even this administration. <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I, you know, to continue to throw money at a problem that is that is not making sense financially, rather than having the word that you just said, patience. Yeah. 
for some reason I can just picture Aaron Rodgers. You know, he he has this way of using a the quarterback having his yeah. way of using one word, and he would go, "Shh, patience." So maybe everyone could take a deep breath. <laughs> I hope they will. Uh, I hope they'll read your book. I hope they'll read the report. Again, uh, for people who are interested in the book, I, I can't recommend this stuff enough because we need a reality check. We need to understand that the empty, hollow promises of AOC and her ilk are empty, hollow promises. And it's, it, it, it's just something that that we need to be aware of and, and take with a grain of salt. Uh, Mark Mills with the Manhattan Institute uh, and the book is, and I'm just scrolling down here if people can't, uh, The Cloud Revolution, How the Convergence of New Technologies Will Unleash the Next Economic Boom and a Roaring 2020s. Uh, you've written so much and now this report as well, and I, and I will, again, tweet this out in sections of it. I just think it's so important, Mark, for people to get their head around what, what really needs what's real and what's delusional. Thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for having me and thanks for promoting my book and more, more importantly for such a deliciously brief and accurate summation of the thesis. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, we try, we try. Thanks again. This has been sideline sanity. Be brave, do good and don't be delusional. <laughs> Well, we always appreciate it when Charles Thorngren can join the join the podcast and talk a little money and gold in particular with us. Gold and silver. And Charles, it's these are mad times. I mean, it's just really wacky. And anyone who's watching the stock market is probably asking themselves, what do I do? I don't I don't know, you know, I'm not I don't know how to ride this roller coaster with everyone. And so, obviously, you recommend investing in precious metals. What's the first step that someone should take in learning about what precious metals can do for them? You know, the first step, um, give us a call, right? We're, we're going to show you what options there are available. Um, that's what Legacy is about, is showing you options and educating everyone. The important thing to know is that we don't invest in gold and silver because it's pretty or because it's, it's unique. Those things are true, but we do it because it has the history of being the true diversity for someone's portfolio. It's the insurance policy against everyone's retirement and their uh, their savings. So, so this is why we look at, at gold and silver specifically. It's the currency that was always meant to be, right? It's not a fiat currency. There's no um, inflationary effect on it. Gold and silver are going to be worth what they're worth. The thing that changes with everything is the amount of dollars it takes to buy that gold and silver and the amount of dollars you get for owning that gold and silver. That's the big key. And this is what people don't understand about it typically is that it is not the stock market and it is not the dollar. It's an investment that is counter to both of those. So it gives you true diversity and balance is what everyone's looking for right now. They just don't know it as inflation yeah. gets higher. This is where gold and silver come in. Someone is saying, okay, I, I want to do this, but I want to choose one or the other. When right. they call you and ask you these questions, when would you recommend gold and when would you recommend silver? You know, that's a great question. And what a lot of people wind up doing is actually doing a little of both because that's possible, right? 
but it's going to depend on your specific investment parameters. And that's one of the things we're going to do that we're, we're different from your typical stockbroker because we're not going to say, this is what all my customers are doing because that's not what's important. What's important is what matters to you and your portfolio. When is your retirement coming up? What are you looking to accomplish, right? What are your risks? What are, what, are your, what are your safety features that you need? So there's a lot that goes into it. And what we do here is, is talk with you, right? Our, our big thing is to educate you so that you understand why you're doing it as well as in what form and fashion, because that's important. It is important. And I think, too, that people probably think uh, I'm a small investor. This is not for me. I can't I can't afford to do this. I can't afford to do this at a level that will benefit me to them. You would say what? Um, I don't think you can afford not to. If you have money saved and you're not flush with cash, it's more important than ever for you to make sure that you put yourself in a protective situation. Right. You have less to lose. So you should not lose it. it. It's really, you know, it's it's not about how much money you have or don't have. It's about how much protection you need. And if you don't have a, a very large portfolio, then you probably need it more than the guy who does. Because you can't afford that loss. And look at what the market's done over the course of the year. We are talking about a situation where the loss is extravagant and it's not done yet. This is why we look at uh, precious metals to counter that. And lastly, Charles, for those who fear that a recession may already be here or is coming, what do you tell them about how in a recession this investment helps out? Great question. A couple answers there. We are in a recession, um, but the reality is it's not going to get bad for a few more months. Then it's really going to be bad. What we see happen next year is going to be devastating. Just think 2007, 2008, right? The troubles with 2008 happened in 2007. It just took time for it to hit the market in a real sense. And this is what we see. You know, we have inflationary numbers that rival the 80s. Um, That's something that's going to be dramatic. So, When we look at this, we say, why do we want to do it? And that's exactly why. It helps because it's not the dollar and it's not the stock market, right? This is the safe haven investment. And if you look at long-term wisdom, that's what metals do. They give you a place to store your wealth without the effects of inflation, right? Inflation is good for your metals. The stock market correcting is good for your metals, a weak economy is better for your metals. So that's what it's meant to do. And that's why it has its place in the economy. We're talking about a worst case scenario right now, but even under the best of terms, the government tells you two to 3% inflation is a good thing. And at two or 3%, it doesn't sound bad, right? But over the course of your retirement and your lifetime investing, if you go 40 years, you've lost over 120% of value of your dollar by not having metals. So even in the best of times, there should be some in your portfolio. And during the worst, you really want to make sure you get a hold of somebody who can explain why and show you what options you have. Yeah, that's why we love to recommend Legacy Precious Metals on our show, Sideline Sanity. So the website is LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. 
You can also go to the website and find the phone number to call, learn a whole lot more. It's just worth asking some questions, right? A quick phone call and getting more information about everyone's specific situation. Absolutely. We're a no-pressure organization. Everyone who contacts us, they reach out to us. We share information. If it's right for you, great. If it's not, that's great too. Learning something never hurt anybody. No, that is true. (laughs) And we're glad we had you on to learn something from you today, Charles Thorngren. Again, it's LegacyPMInvestments.com. Please go check them out. Just ask some questions. Learn a little something. Thank you so much, Charles. My pleasure. Thank you.